This is Alice's Restaurant, 90.4 megahertz, and we're here to bring you the very best in rock music. You're in tune with Lou the Duke here on Radio City. If you want to write... Anyway, welcome to MAR on 266 metres medium wave, the sound of the northwest. It's a Thameside Radio on 90.2 megahertz VHF. Welcome to episode three of the Pirates of the Airways podcast. My name's Mark Wakeley and I'm one of the people behind the land-based pirate radio of the 70s and 80s Facebook group. In these podcasts, I chat to some people involved in pirate radio of the 1970s and 1980s about their time in this secret but not so secret world. If you're one of those radio rebels and you want to tell the world about how you changed the face of radio in the UK, or just spent your Sunday mornings carrying car batteries into a forest hoping not to be seen by an inquisitive member of the public and knowing that the battery acid would ruin your favourite band t-shirt, or you just have a comment about the pod, then get in touch at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. That's piratepod7080 at gmail.com or via the Facebook group. And before I go any further, let me thank the good people at thepiratearchive.net, amfm.org.uk and pirate.ie for their help in the production of this podcast. Okay, that's enough waffle. On to this episode's guest. He was a listener, then a helper, then a presenter on London Soul Station Radio Invicta, after which he joined the Voice of Peace somewhere in the Mediterranean, and then ended up in Ireland working on many of the pirates of the early 1980s. Known to the listeners of London, the Middle East and Ireland, and to everyone else for that matter, as Steve Marshall. We chat about going up tower blocks at 14, life on the peace ship, his working friendship with Tony Allen, and life as a pirate in Ireland during the boom years. So, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast. This week, we're going to be speaking to Steve Marshall, ex-radio and victim voice of peace, and various Irish stations as well. So, uh, good morning to you, Steve. How are you? I'm very good. I'm a in Northern Ireland at the moment, in Derry, London, Derry. And it's one of those mornings I'm actually quite happy I'm not up a hill putting an aerial up because it's quite windy. But otherwise, I'm great. Is it always windy in Northern Ireland anyway? Well, it can be. We get the four seasons most of the time. My first question, as always, is when did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just radio? Well, there's an interesting story. Um, I, I have Richard Branson. To, start, to thank for my um, entry into pirate radio. Uh, when I was, uh, I was about 13, I'd done lots of different stuff when I was very young. I was a filmmaker. I was the youngest filmmaker ever to show a film at the then Edinburgh Film Festival. Um, so there was one Saturday morning, I was in the Virgin Records in Notting Hill. Um, and I used to go in there because it was very good at getting uh, very cheap albums by these obscure German groups like Amodul and um, that sort of stuff. Uh, and they had all the records racked up. And there was this LP called The Ten Years of Offshore Radio. Now, I wasn't aware of offshore radio. I was way too young to remember the first uh, 1960s Pirates. Uh, but I thought, well, this sounds interesting. So 
I was sitting there in uh, one of these comfy chairs in Virgin because that's what they used to have. It's like a you know you had a pair of headphones and a comfy chair, and I was fascinated by these radio stations that I'd never heard of. So, uh, and this would have been, I suppose, about 1975, and there was a magazine called Time Out. Uh, which had various listings of uh, theater, and it also had a radio section. Uh, and there was this radio station, which was broadcasting on a Friday night into Saturday morning called Radio Concord. So I had a very old, medium-wave valve radio, and I used to listen to it. And radio is one of those things that it's all about imagination. You, do, you can have a studio that's been... Uh, put together with bits of string and bits of wire. And as long as it sounds okay on the radio, the listener doesn't even know. And these guys were broadcasting from squats in Chalk Farm and Camden Town and all these various places. So I used to listen to it. And then what happened, it would have been the summer of 1975. There was this uh, radio station called Radio Invicta, uh, which broadcast on FM. So I borrowed an FM radio because I didn't have an FM radio at the time. And this amazing radio station came on the air on a, it would have been Eastern Bank holiday and they gave a mailing address. So uh, I thought, well, this sounds interesting. You know, let's find out a bit more about what they're doing. And so I wrote off to them, uh, got a letter back from Roger Tate, better known as Bob Tomowski inviting me to call up one of their disc jockeys who worked in a travel agent in Brixton called Tony Johns. So they had these meetings every Sunday at the Three Kings in Mitcham, okay, which was a bus ride. Uh, and I was maybe 14 years old. So I turned up one Sunday and introduced myself. And of course, these guys were fairly wary of a young kid just turned up in a pub on a Sunday. Uh, and eventually, they trusted me enough to allow me to see the Radio Invicta studio, which was located in Bob Tomowski's flat in Mitcham, about you know about five minutes away from where this pub was. Back in those days, no one went on the radio. You had to learn the trade, as it were. So I spent bank holidays up tower blocks in London. Um, and we used to go into the lifts with all these aerial poles and transmitters, which were all built by Bob Tomowski and another guy called Roy King. And they were about 100 watts, so big valve things. But they didn't actually weigh too much. The actual transformers were massive because they stepped up from 240 volts AC and they basically ran these transmitters, 100 watt transmitters. So we'd connect the aerials up to the transmitter and switch it on. And the thing was, that was what was interesting, I mean, you know, the press throughout the years has talked about pirate radio. I didn't even think about the legality of the thing. It didn't even enter my head. It was just something interesting to do, which I'd never done before. And I learned a lot at a very young age of what, you know, people with a bit of determination can do. I mean, the quality was absolutely amazing. If you switched on an average radio or a tuner, you wouldn't have known it was a pirate radio station. And it just sort of built a listenership. I mean, you know, we did the first live broadcasts through, they were band three links, the uh, link transmitter, the first one that we used, which would have been 
sometime around Easter 77, was built by Trevor Brooks of Surrey Electronics. Uh, and it was an amazing bit of kit. I mean, it weighed a ton. You know, it needed three people to, to carry it up, up the lifts to the blockhouse at the top. Uh, and anyone that did tower block uh, broadcasting would know that you, you, you had a set of keys, which um, there were fire brigade keys, and there was two of them. Uh, two sets of them, and it opened most of these blockhouses. Um, but we used to turn up on a whatever day it was with all this gear, and no one even noticed. So when you first started with them, were their programs still taped? Yeah, it was. I mean, when they first started, it was bank holidays only. They started doing I mean, Invictus started in 1970, and it broadcasts uh, from Tony John's bedroom. That's basically what they did. Yeah. Um, with an ex-taxi transmitter, which wasn't receivable. You couldn't receive it very well on an an FM radio. So Bob Tomowski had heard these broadcasts because he lived in Mitchum as well, you know, about five minutes away from where Tony Johns lived. And he built them their first workable transmitter, as it were. And he did it because he just wanted to improve the sound. He liked the music that he'd heard. And he just wanted to improve the range. It was all tapes. It was on cassette or it was on reel-to-reel. So we used to switch every half an hour because we thought that the um, GPO wouldn't track it. Of course, they probably could. I mean, it would probably take them less than 30 minutes to do it. But that was the idea. So, yeah, it was a bank holidays only. And it was it started off, it was about, I think, six or eight hours from memory. So yeah, and it, it was already yeah. a product. I assume a Soul Station uh, at that time. Yeah, it was. I mean, Tony Johns had a very large record collection, and he wanted to promote soul music on the radio, and that was uh, you know the basis for starting Radio and Victor in 1970. They went, I think, to about 1972, and then took a break. And then, as I say, the first broadcast that I heard was 1975. It was the first FM pirate I heard, actually, was Invicta and RFL on the same day. And you're right, the quality was as good as anything else you would have heard on the radio at the time. That would have been about 78, I would imagine. So I assume you were still involved in 78. Yeah, I was. I was involved with Invicta till 1980. The tower block thing... Um, I've never done tower block work. I only ever use fields and houses. So uh, it's always a bit of a mystery to me. So was it um, was it a death-defying thing? How old were you when you first did a bit of tower block work? Well, I must have been about 14. There was various tower blocks. I mean, we used tower blocks in the west of London. There was places like Kew, Roehampton. And it was, from memory, it was about 200 feet up. What you do is you basically find a place to put the aerial. And there was a group of a block of flats in queue where basically you had a, a concrete thing and you'd have to leap up through a gap and put the aerial up. Someone would, you know, would give you a hand up and then you just basically put it up. There was no harnesses. There was no yellow jackets. You just went up and did it. I, I, it's probably a good job I was never at the top of a tower block because I would have just been lying on the floor flat <laughs> the whole time. I'm not very good at heights. I know plenty of people who did use tower blocks and, and some of the things they tell me about the uh, using the, the top of blocks and what they did, you wouldn't be allowed to do that today. <laughs> You know, Peter St. Crispian, I mean, him and Bob Tomowski and Tony, you know, had a long discussion about whether it was safe to put a 
14 year old up a, t- a tower block. I mean, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, well, that's what you do. But yeah, I mean, the height thing, you just got used to it. You just did what you had to do. I mean, we, I was lucky, you know, throughout doing uh, Invector, I was never caught by the post office. Were they raided during your time there? Well, in 1977, it was slightly different because I think the post office, you know, for various reasons, had slowed down their rating of pirate radio. That's what I understand. Yeah, I mean, it was quite, you know, I was quite lucky that I got involved in a time where they basically weren't rating uh, radio stations, certainly on FM anyway. I mean, the transmitters were really clean. I mean, and the signal was amazing. You know, the quality of the broadcast. And Bob Tomowski was very particular about that. I mean, I remember the first show which I did for Invector, which would have been, was 1975. Uh, and that was the first show. So I learned how a radio studio works. I'd never done that before. And I had to learn to do it. So I just practiced being a disc jockey. And eventually worked out how you cue records up and tapes and cartridges and all that sort of stuff. Everybody endured that transmitter change. This is Roger Tate in Studio One, saying hello now to Steve Marshall in Studio Two. Good afternoon, Roger. Good afternoon. All ready to give us a really great programme, I hope. Yes, I am. Good. Yeah, what do you think about the lack of Christmas cars? Nobody feels Christmassy at the moment. No, they don't. The shops do, though. Well, that's all very well for the shops, but nobody's sending us any Christmas cars. No. Guys and girls. Straight in at the chart at number 29. What sort of um, area was Invicta covering at that time? Well, I mean, it depended where the transmitter was sighted, but because it was fairly high up, it covered most of London. Invicta's base audience was in South London. If we were broadcasting into the basin, because London is, a, is basically a basin, so that if you're at a reasonable height, you can overshoot the River Thames and basically broadcast to South London if you're broadcasting from North London. The coverage was really good. And it was amazing, the people that listened. I mean, we got phone calls from some very famous people. Okay. Uh, Name names. uh, Well, it was Peter Young from Capital. He used to listen. Uh, Tony Blackburn used to listen. Giles Peterson used to listen. And Giles became involved in Victor. Well, he started his own radio station before that. Uh, but he uh, became involved with Invector over the years. And, you know, uh, fair play to, to Giles. Every time that he does an, an interview, he, he always mentions Radio Invector, which is which is great. And he's done very well for himself. Yeah, he certainly has. I, I Like you said, the signal, I lived on the northeast London-Essex borders, and I could hear Victor absolutely fine, you know, in 78. Obviously, they're running more. Were they running 100 watts then or a bit more than that would it have been? Yeah, they'd be running about 100 watts. The um, QV640A bounds. It's amazing what you remember. And that's what they were. I mean, there's a funny stuff. There's a couple of funny tower block stories. One of them was that the transformers we used to run the transmitters, as I said, they, were, they stepped up from 240 to what it 
ever votes. It was DC to run the bounds. And I remember there was one day we were there and I got a belt off one of the Transformers. Someone basically got a bit of wood and disconnected me from a Transformer. And it was just like a, you know, electric shock, basically. The other thing is we were broadcasting from a tower block in the Edgeware Road. It was one Sunday after. This is when Invicta went weekly. Invicta went weekly from about 1977. It started off at three hours. Uh, and then it extended to six hours. And then it eventually extended to eight hours. Uh, and we were broadcasting from a tower block in the Edgeware Road, just over the road from the police station, funny enough. And towards the end of the broadcast, the caretaker came up and he was inquiring what we were doing, you know, which is fair enough. And we said that we were from the IBA testing for television transmission because if you look at the transmitters, they had little dials that went up and down. It, you know, it looked all very technical. And this guy said, yeah, well, that's fine, but we're on cable TV. So we didn't use that place again for those reasons. But we didn't get anyone come up. I mean, you know, we were fairly quiet. We left the space as we'd found it, basically. And, it, you know, the transmitters and everything looked quite technical. It could have been some sort of reception equipment rather than, you know, naughty radio transmitter with an aerial and tape machines and all the rest of it. I think at that time as well, pirate radio wasn't really in the mainstream, as in people didn't know it really existed in that context. You could probably blag your way out of most situations with the general public, I should imagine. Yeah, I mean, the thing was that Invicta actually didn't sound like a pirate. That was the, uh, it wasn't campaigning for free radio or anything. It just was, well, initially it was campaigning for more soul music on Radio 1, and then it campaigned for a soul program, which Robbie Vincent did for a while. But it, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the music that's played on the radio, especially from the soul genre or whatever, so many songs that Invicta played first. I mean, it's incredible, really. That something that Invector did really well. And, you know, we used to have a thing called the Soul Pole, which was like a weekly top 20 program. I remember the Soul Pole. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was done very methodically. There was a certain amount of votes for the first choice someone had and the second choice and the number one choice. But there was people, you know, there was groups like Yarbrough and Peoples, Champagne, How About Us, Invicta played that first. And that was a massive song. Even now, you know, it's all the oldies stations would play that. And that was played first in Europe by Invicta. The disc jockeys used to um, supply their own records. And then we had a deal with Bluebird Records, which was a record shop. And they supplied all the music to Invicta. I think Bluebird used to advertise, didn't they, Invicta? Yes. Well, that was, that was the deal. They advertised and we got the music. So um, it, it was a win-win for everyone. But... It meant that Invicta was very upfront on the music it was playing. And the audience loved it. It was because Invicta was the only station playing that music. You know, the audience was there. And it sort of mushroomed from there. We had people like Chris Hill, who was um, a disco DJ. Eventually what happened was that Invicta went live. And that sort of changed the radio station. Because rather than spending all week recording the programs, the disc jockeys would turn up and do the shows. Steve Walsh was involved, wasn't he, in the later yeah. days, if I remember? Because I think I met yeah. him at a Pirate Radio Do around that time. Yeah, Steve was one of the first 
big club DJs that got involved in Invector. Um, and he was really good for promoting the radio station because he was out every weekend. He was working with Lyceum in London uh, and various other uh, places. So he did it. Chris Hill did it. Chris Brown uh, did some shows. Sean French did some shows. George Power, um, who eventually was involved with Kiss. We had you know regular guest shows from these big club DJs. And that sort of changed the profile of the radio station. That's Invicta. Steve, tell me about your first visit to Ireland. Well, my first visit to Ireland would have been about 1979. There was a lot of radio on the air because what had happened was that the law in Ireland at the time was the 1926 Broadcasting Act. Uh, You'd had hobby pirates in the mid-60s, around the time Caroline was on the air, Radio London, and they were raided on a regular basis. Uh, And then about 1978, somewhere around that time, there was a guy called Eamon Cook uh, who ran a radio station called Radio Dublin, and he was prosecuted by the then Post and Telegraphs, which is like the Irish version of the general post office. And he stood in court and said, well, a radio transmitter can be used for various purposes. It emits heat. It can be used as a signal generator, you know, various other stuff. So the judge agreed. So that basically opened up the doors for commercial radio. Now, at the time, there was Radio Aaron, which was then the Irish version of the BBC, and there was one channel. That was it. And you'd have sponsor programs, which was their mainstay. And you had one hour a week with a guy called Larry Gogan, who ended up on RT Radio 2, 2 FM. And that was the pop hits of the day. That was one hour a week. So these uh, radio stations, this is Radio Dublin. There was various radio stations that started up, ARD, Big D. There was a split from Radio Dublin, and they went 24-7. This is Radio Dublin broadcasting live on 253 metres medium wave, 1187 kilohertz. Good morning, John. This uh, what looks like a very, very snowy morning out. In fact, the snow seems to have started a little while ago, and uh, there's a nice little uh, white covering of snow all around the place at the moment. So, if you're going out this morning, it looks uh, as if there's a bit more traffic out earlier than usual this morning. So, I think everybody seems to be uh, going out about five or ten minutes earlier, so as to allow themselves uh, time to uh, go a bit slower during well, because of course of the, <laughs> the bad road conditions. So that opened up local commercial radio, and that spread throughout the island of Ireland to Galway and Cork uh, and various other things. So I turned up and I had a look around these radio stations. It wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to get involved with at that time, but I made a mental note and I thought, well, this sounds interesting. I'll, you know, I'll keep that in the back of my mind for future reference. As I said, I've always been very curious uh, to find out about things, and I made it my business to find out why these radio stations were on the air and how they were doing it. That was 1979. I was still involved with Invicta. There was a guy that was involved with Invicta called Richard Jackson, 
who'd just been out in the Voice of Peace. And I thought, well, that sounds even more interesting. And that was in, in Israel. What happened in 1980, and it's one of those phone calls, Mark, that changed my life. There's a couple of phone calls, which I'll talk about later, that changed my life, but that certainly did. So I phoned them up, and this is back in the day. So you'd call an operator, and they'd put you through to this number. So I phoned up, and, you know, if there's something that I want to do, I'll just go off and do it. I've always been like that. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, but that's what I did. And they said, yeah, what you need to do is you need to have a passport, right? I didn't have a passport, or I didn't need a passport. So what happened was, my dad, I, I'm an Irish citizen, I have been all my life. My dad called up the passport office, spoke to someone who knew someone that he knew. And I turned up with my form in the passport office. The next day, I got the passport. And this was a radio station that was on a ship. I had no inkling about what a radio station on a ship involved. I'd heard recordings of these radio stations, but I'd never been involved on an offshore radio station. So I turned up in Tel Aviv Airport uh, three days later, got off the plane. Now, the guy who owned the radio station was a guy called A.B. Nathan who was extremely well-known in Israel and in the Middle East. Uh, he was a peace campaigner. That's why he started up the radio station. By chance, he was on the same flight as I was going to Tel Aviv. So I turned up in Tel Aviv airport to be met by Chimbet, which is the Israeli security. If you come into, uh, even now, if you come into Israel, you're interviewed by uh, Israeli security asked basically why you're coming to the country. I would have been about 19, somewhere around there. You could see the entrance hall, and there was someone with a sign saying the Voice of Peace. So I thought, well, fair enough. So I said, well, I'm coming to work for the Voice of Peace. And the woman said to me, oh, that's wonderful. She said, here's your stamp. We arrived in Ashdod, which is a port uh, in Israel, and the radio station was off the air. Uh, I didn't even know that. So I spent about six weeks chipping decks, paint lockers, red lead paint. I was an expert on that by, by the time of doing that. And the people that I met was um, Tony Mandel, who'd worked on offshore radio assets back in the 60s, Keith York, who'd been involved in Radio Concord. Uh, and York, he, he's, not, he's not alive anymore, but he was a really good friend of mine. Keith was a genius. He was an absolute genius. There's people that I've met through my radio career, and I met, I'll mention a couple of them later, but Yorkie should basically take a pile of junk and make it work. And, you know, he was a couple of years older than me. So we spent about six weeks making the chip, chip shape for leaving the port. Uh, and every day the guy from the Lloyd's Insurance used to come down and say, no, 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 no. No, you have to you have to strip the paint again and put it do a certain amount of stuff, do a bit of welding, uh, and then repaint it and then it'd be ship shaped. So this went on for about six weeks. Uh, and it was the height of summer, it was about what, forty five degrees? So we did all that, but in the meantime I learned how the radio studio worked. And we had a massive gates mixer, the rotary knobs and a pair of uh, Rusco turntables. Because what had happened was the radio station had been on AM. There was about 40 kilowatts of AM, but they had a new FM transmitter installed. And the sun 
uh, of the guy who supplied the transmitter had come over to Israel to install the transmitter. The original name of the ship was Sacito, and what Abi had done, he'd gone to New York in the early 70s, and he'd raised money for this floating radio station. And Abi was really determined. I mean, you know, I learned a lot from him. I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, various people over the years, but Abi was very determined to put this radio station on the air. Yeah, he had this idea for a piece radio station with lots of music, and it would pe- bring people together. Um, and it kind of worked. Um, it gave a lot of disc jockeys, like myself, our first professional radio experience. Ici, la Voix de la Paix, émettant de quelque part dans la Méditerranée sur 1540 kg. From somewhere in the Mediterranean, we are the Voice of Peace on 1540 kHz. Right now, you can listen to the Voice of Peace on FM stereo. That's right, 100 on your FM dial. Eventually, we got out to sea. Now, this would have been around the summer of 1980, and Caroline had just closed down. You know, the Mi Amigo had sunk, and we were joined by Johnny Lewis, who I was listening to on Caroline today. Johnny's still around. Stevie Gordon and Chris Chris St. John. And it was a top 40 format. I mean, it was very tight. It was 15-second lengths, a lot of advertising by both local and international brands. And we used to take the news from Call Israel every hour. Uh, so basically what you'd have is you'd have a six-minute, six-second jingle, and you'd listen or prefade listen uh, when the pips came up, and then you'd go to Call Israel News. Uh, and the out cue was um, Ad had a shot, which means that is the news. But they were clever at Call Israel because they realized that most of the disc jockeys didn't speak much Hebrew. So they'd continue the news broadcast. So if you weren't listening properly, the three-minute or six-minute newscast would end up going up for 15 minutes, where they'd have all the local news and the farming news and all that. And I loved it. But what was very funny, we used to have one week off a month where you were on shore leave. Basically, the people that worked for the Voice of Peace, we were on the ship's log. I think Don Stevens has... A copy, well, I think he has the original ship's log. So everyone that worked on the radio station was put into that log. It's a, it's a maritime thing. I spent a, a week with some family friends up in Jerusalem, and I got my way into Col uh, Israel. And there was a newsreader, a very famous newsreader called Miriam Malon. And she says, uh, walked in and she says, so who are you? And I said, well, I work for The Voice of Peace. We rebroadcast your news every hour. She started laughing. Uh, she said, really? I said, yeah. So, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was, I was there for about nine months. I learned a lot about radio, professional radio. But what I also learned, and I think just talking to people like Tom Edwards, anyone that's done offshore radio, um, and there's a lot of people on Facebook who who did, was that you not only learn about radio, but you learn that if you can live in a very small space with the same amount of people for a long time, you learn a lot of people skills. You learn to get on with people. And I remember there was a 
interview with Bob Lawrence, uh, who worked for Caroline. And I met Bob sometime in the 1970s. He was involved with London Music Radio with Stuart Bourne at the time. Bob said something. He said that if you had to have a discussion, it had to happen there and then. There was a lot of people that, you know, came on the Voice of Peace and probably a lot of offshore radio. And they were probably brilliant discharges, but they didn't get on with people. So they didn't last that long. Because if you don't have many miles off the coast of wherever you were, you know, there's no way that you can walk down the road. You're there until the next tender comes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've read various books which talk about, you know, the life on board. And it's quite intense, for the want of a better phrase, because you are in a small space with, with these people. 24 hours a day, pretty much. And you depend on each other. That's, you know, we never, I mean, the, the waters of the Mediterranean are reasonably calm. Although uh, we did have a few people that came on board. There was one guy who he didn't even last a day because he got seasick. Um, because what we used to do uh, about every three, four months is we used to come into port to refuel with water and, you know, diesel, basically. So when it was getting to the time when we had to refuel, the ship would be fairly high up in the water, and it got a bit windy at, at night. And of course, there was a big aerial mast on this ship, so it used to, you know, it used to rock a little bit. It never bothered me. Uh, even now, I remember the last time I came over to Ireland from Spain, and we came over in a Force Twelve gale. It just didn't bother me, Mark. I slept like a log. It, it was probably that, you know, that, that training on the voice of peace because you learnt basically to sleep with the ship, if that makes sense, because the rhythm of the boat basically sent you to sleep. But it was intense, yeah. I mean, it was radio, radio, radio. And, you know, I learned from some really good people on how to do good radio. And it's put me in good stead. You know, I learned about formats. I learned about how to do a tight radio program, how the music works, why you program certain music at certain times of day, all that stuff, you know, throughout the years, it's helped me. I read a wonderful book, which I've got a, a copy of, I eventually got a copy of. It's by Hall and Hall. It's called This Business of Radio Programming. It's quite old, but it's one of the best books I ever read about, uh, have read about music radio programming. The offshore stations were based on stations in the States called like WABC New York and WMCA and all these famous radio stations. But actually to read how they put the radio stations together and why they did it in a certain way, it, you know, it, it explains it. So you finish on The Voice of Peace, you come back to the UK, what's your next move? Oh, yeah. Well, that, then I turned up in Ireland and that would have been 1981. The first radio station I worked for was a station called Southside Radio, uh, which was in the south of Dublin. It was based in the Victor Hotel. Our studios were located just at the basement. It's now 2.54 and a half. You're listening to Southside Radio on 300 meters in the medium wave band. 1,000 kilohertz, our good old frequency there. And we're also on FM on 104 megahertz. Now, if you're receiving us loudly and clearly on medium wave, and you've got a music center or hi-fi tablet, that have got FM on them, why not tune over to FM because that the difference in quality will be just starting. Not that our medium wave signal is bad or anything, but of course, as all our technical buttons out there will know, uh, you get much better quality on FM by the very nature of frequency modulation 
uh, broadcasting. Well, if you'd like to phone us up, tell us how you're receiving us, you're perfectly welcome once again at 863305. And the music will now continue with Boney M. And this one from a couple of years ago, this is called Ma Baker. And this was another of these phone calls. I, I did mention that, you know, it was a couple of phone calls that changed my life. That was another phone call that changed my life because, you know, after spending nine months on The Voice of Peace, I decided that that's what is what I wanted to do uh, for, for a living. There wasn't that much commercial radio at that time. I sort of, as I say, in 1979, in the back of my mind, I mentally remembered these radio stations. So I thought, well, we'll give them a call and see if we can get a job. So I phoned up uh, this radio station in the south of Dublin called Southside Radio. It was on 300 meters. One of the guys I worked with on The Voice of Peace, Yorkie Keith York, answered the phone. And he says, Marshall, get on the ferry. There's a job for you here. That's what I did. So I turned up. We had a ET transmitter. It was a XRCA transmitter. It was the sort of transmitters that Radio Invictus, the Fort Boy-based station on Red Sands had used. It was about 400 watts. But Keith, being the genius he was, he put like some nice processing on it. It was nice and loud, so you couldn't miss it. Johnny Lewis was there. Who else was there? Nick Richards. He was there. So there was, you know, quite a few of us. Scott Williams, who's now very high up in UTV, uh, and it was run by a fellow called Andrew Coffey, who was a mayor of Monkstown. Monkstown is an area of Dublin, and he was a mayor of Monkstown for a while. And Ali was a real character. He could sell anything to anyone. He really could. But it was good fun. I mean, that's when the radio was changing. 1981, the radio was changing because... You had stations like Sunshine, which was the first, I suppose, super pirate in Dublin run by Robbie Dale. Stevie Gordon was on that. Tom Hardy was on that. Tony Allen was on that in the early days. And then, of course, along came Nova, which completely changed the radio landscape in Ireland at the time, run by Chris Carey. And that had a massive FM signal. Beautiful, you know, sound processed. These basically were offshore people running pirate stations onshore, how they would always have wanted to, I assume, if they hadn't been on ships. Well, I think what it was with Robbie and Chris, and it was it was interesting, you know, the, the whole radio scene in Ireland in the 80s, because I worked for a lot of different radio stations in a lot of different cities, and there was always a quality mark, because they were commercial radio stations. That you know, the the idea was basically to offer a platform to sell advertising. So they so, were run on a professional commercial basis. This wasn't a yeah, some exactly. sort of I mean, um, no. I mean, Sunshine, you know, was the first super pirate. There'd been um, you know Radio Dublin. There'd been ARD, Big D, all these various radio stations. And Chris was actually involved in the early days of Sunshine. Um, they had a, a pair of. AM transmitters were linked up. It was in the Sands Hotel in Port Marnock, which is in North Dublin. They put this radio station on there. That would have been about 1980. And it was a dance music station. That's originally where it started off, uh, using jingles that were produced for a planned uh, offshore radio station off Spain, I think. It was either Spain or Portugal, uh, which didn't happen. They'd obviously looked at the way that the the radio scene was developing in Ireland, where you basically what you did if you 
had an idea for a radio station, you switched it on. And it was market forces determined if it was successful. That's what happened with Sunshine. That's what happened with Nova. I did Southside Radio in 81. And it was just, yeah, the radio scene was real interesting because there was a lot of people that had looked and waited their time and then thought, well, this is the time to get involved because the whole commercial radio scene is developing uh, to such as a standard. And they thought, you know, Sunshine and Nova really changed the game because that's um, in 1979, uh, thanks to the 24 for seven stations like ARD and Big D and Radio Dublin, uh, RT put on a pop service, which was then called RT, uh, RT2, um, which became 2FM. And they got a lot of ex-pirate disc jockeys, people like Jerry Ryan, Dave Fanning, various other people, to be disc jockeys on this radio station. And of course, Larry Gogan, who was the original pop jockey, you know, pop disc jockey on Radio Aaron, he launched the radio station. And in fact, Larry remained one of our top disc jockeys. You know. Seven three eight. Radio, radio, Nova. Radio Nova. The, the legality of the radio stations was open to debate. There wasn't really the law wasn't that strong, and it was still the nineteen twenty six Act. The majority of the radio stations in Ireland. You know, the engineering was done by professional transmitter engineers, experienced tra- transmitter engineers. So it was, nice, it was nice, clean signals. But yeah, with Sunshine and Nova, that sort of changed the game because national advertisers, you know, they had the audience. So the national and international brands wanted to get involved. How many stations in Dublin around that time? Because you always get the impression that it was absolutely packed with, with stations up and down the, the, the dial. Yeah, there was a lot of radio. I can't remember exactly how many there were, maybe 20 or 30, and I guess. There was, you know, very small little radio stations that covered a specific area. I mean, Nova was on FM. I mean, people didn't listen on FM. The AM dial was packed with radio, but there was very little on FM. And it is a truism that if you put something on that's good, people will find a way to listen. I agree with you. I think it's about the quality, not necessarily quantity, which I think is one of the problems we have now in commercial radio, is it's about quantity. It's not necessarily quality, if that makes sense. The more transmitters for the same programme, the better, when they're networking and have the whole country. I, mean, I understand, you know, I understand, you know, the likes of Global and Bauer, and, and I have respect because... What they're trying to do is they're building a brand, they're offering an audience to an an advertiser, and they're basically offering national coverage. So it works. I mean, that's, you know, it's the same as a newspaper or a television station or something along those lines. But, yeah, it was about quality. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, every city in Ireland had its big radio stations. Like in 1982, I moved to Cork and I worked for South Coast in the early days, along with Mark Lawrence, who'd been on Caroline, Mark was doing news, Yorkie, uh, Alan Reed, whose real name was Henry Owens, uh, who became the voice of Atlantic 252. Uh, he was also the program director of that. And, you know, Henry would have been, he was actually younger than me, 
about, you know, we're all in our early 20s, but the grounding on commercial radio, it's like going back, if you like, to the radio ships. You had to do everything. There wasn't, you know, lots of office staff running around with clipboards and, and all that. If an outside broadcast had to be done, then you did it. You know, that's basically what you did. You did the production. So the skills, there was a lot of offshore, ex-offshore radio people involved, people like Don Allen, for example, who started off on Sunshine, worked on Nova. He worked, I worked with Don uh, at ERI in Cork, um, along with Ian Bigger, uh, who a lot of people will know. Ian's a longtime archive guy of uh, Irish radio and various other radio over the years. I mean, I worked with Tony Allen on a, a number of the radio stations, and Tony was probably one of the most talented people I ever worked with. Tony could do basically everything in radio. And he was a nice guy. If you, you know, if you go on with Tony, that was it. And he was a real professional. He'd just go in and do it. Tony's voice was on practically every radio station in Ireland in the 80s. Imagine there's absolute magic happening here in Dublin tonight. Absolute magic. I'm looking at our uh, closed-circuit television set. Herbert Street is just solid jammed, packed. I am totally and utterly delighted. Is there anybody upstairs in the box, I there wonder? There certainly is, Tony. Hello, Dave. I've still got a Tony Allen jingle. It's on a cassette, uh, which he recorded for me in uh, a studio. I can't remember where. It was in West Cork one afternoon, and he says, well, Marshall, what do you want me to do? And I said, Tony, could you do me a couple of jingles? So he did these jingles. And they're brilliant. And they still sound brilliant. Well, um, that voice, wasn't it? That's, that's the thing. That voice is something else. Well, it wasn't only the voice. What, Tony was a really intelligent, bright guy. Some of the great conversations I had with Tony were never about radio. He was like myself. He was always interested in the way that the world worked. And a lot of people you speak to who knew Tony well, as I did, you know, it was always really interesting. And Nick Richards actually, um, he told me a story. Uh, when they were on Caroline. And there was a quiz show uh, on BBC Radio 4, and Tony was a big Radio 4 listener. He loved listening to Radio 4. Um, and there was a quiz show, uh, and Tony got every question right. And Nick thought it was a repeat. No, it wasn't. It was the first broadcast. But he was a very clever, switched-on sort of guy. And there was a couple of occasions where we were doing radio, and Tony was one of the best people to have. Because he'd just go in and do it. Whatever it was, whatever time of day it was, uh, if something had to be done, Tony was there with everyone else. And, you know, I had respect for him professionally, and I had respect for him as a person as well. And that voice, I don't think, except for Patrick Allen, I don't think I ever heard a voice since then, before or since, that could match it. You know, when he did a commercial, or he did a jingle, it sounded the business. I totally agree with you. Uh I remember hearing on Caroline back in the day and you just thought, before I even realised what a radio voice was, you just knew this guy knew what he was doing. The thing about Tony was he'd taken the trouble to find out. That was the thing. So in that way, we sort of, you know, were kindred spirits. He'd ask why something was happening. And it's something that I've always done. The radio that I do now, and I'm involved with a, a local radio station, but all the tech... I had to learn. And it's just asking people. Radio is not that hard. It's simple stuff. But if you want to get involved, ask someone. 
ask lots of questions, and then you learn. It's like any job. And, you know, Invector, The Voice of Peace, the Irish commercial radio stations. I mean, you know, I ended up, and this would have been the mid-'80s, I was programming radio stations, um, you know, music programming and all that. And I'd learned all that over the years from various people, and I made it my business to find out what works and what doesn't work on radio. And even in 2022, you know, I was, before we were doing this this morning, and I was going through, going through the tunes that we're going to add to the radio station this week, and I still get a buzz out of music. You know, there's music that I've heard over the years, oh, it's all very nice. But I still get that buzz I did when I was 14, 15-year-old, walking into a record shop and saying, what's this? Who's that by? And I don't think it'll ever leave me. And I think that's what keeps the excitement. And just speaking to people over the years, you know, people who are still involved in radio in various ways, they still have that buzz about them. You know, I work with some amazing people, Tony, Yorkie, Chris and John, loads of people, you know, Bob Tabowski, uh, Beans and Crispian, Tony Johns, and they they have all taught me over the years, if you want to get, you know, there's a sign that we have in, in the radio station that I'm involved in at the moment. And there's a very famous clip, which I've shared with a lot of people over the years. It was taken at the Radio Caroline anniversary. I think it might have been the 40th anniversary. Uh, and there's a clip of Tony Allen. Um, and it's a very inspiring clip. And so Tony was a bright guy. Uh, and he wasn't very well at that time, um, but he left a legacy, which I think everyone should watch. And he said, what you basically do is don't let anyone tell you you can't do something. Just go out and do it. And I think that's a really good philosophy in life. And I would agree with it. So we get to the end of the Irish pirate period. Where do you go after that? What's your next move in radio? In, 90, in the tail end of 1988, I'd worked for various radio stations, including a version of uh, Radio Nova, which was in Donegal, which is on, it's just on the border between Northern and Southern Ireland. It's in the southern half of Ireland. I'd worked with a guy called Frankie McLaughlin. When the, the new law came in, which would have been New Year's Eve 1988, all the radio stations had to closed down because they were going to license uh, these new commercial radio stations. So we closed the last station uh, I was involved with in Goy was called Coast 103. So we closed down Coast on New Year's Eve 1988. And then Tony Allen and myself switched back on a transmitter the day after. It was a radio station called Quincentennial Radio because Goy was celebrating its 400 years as a city. So we left that on for a week or so. And I did mention that there was phone calls that have changed my life. This was another of these phone calls. And it was from a guy that I worked with on Radio Nova in Donegal called Frankie McLaughlin, who was starting this new radio station called Riverside 101. Uh, and he called me up and he said, Steve, how do you fancy running my radio station for me? And I was not doing that much. I was doing a few discos and whatever. But I still had the radio bug. But I probably still do. In fact, I do. I don't mind a bit. He said, so what I did was I got the bus up from Galway up to uh, Derry, London, Derry. We put this radio station on the air. Don't forget that at that time, the new Broadcasting Act had just come into force. 
in Sutherland and we put the radio station on and it was bang on the border. That's exactly where the radio station was. Uh, and we had the FM transmitter, which was a couple of hundred watts. And the transmitter was sited in a hotel. It was called the Green Vela Hotel. And the studios were in one of the hotel rooms. And the transmitter and the aerial were bang on the border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. We put this radio station on the air. We put the marketing in. We gave away 500 quid on the air. What we'll do is we'll stick the, the format out. It was a top 40 format. And we put the radio station on the air. And this is another very true story. We used to have listeners in the most amazing places. We had people in the tax office. We had people in the army posts that were dotted around uh, the border at the time. And I'll never forget being on the air one day. There was a fellow phoned up and he says, Hello, my name's Nigel. I'm listening in the Letterkenny Road. And I thought, well, this is a bit of a strange accent. And he was uh, listening at one of the army posts. And he used to, so what we did was we put all the, uh, we had these stickers, Riverside stickers, and they were on all the army checkpoints. So when you came through the checkpoint, that's what you saw was the radio station name. So we did that for a couple of months and the audience grew. We gave away 500 quid. It's, a, it's one of the couple of times that I've given money away on the radio. You know, and it was a three-record spin, basically, three records. And then when you hear the last note of the last song, give us a call, and if you're the 50th caller. And the person who won, she was about 16. A family had no money, and they really needed the cash. She was very happy to have won the radio competition. Um, and we'd moved studios at that time. It was a purpose-built studio. I'll have to explain a little bit about the geography of the area because if you're not aware of it, the next thing I'd say can sound a bit complicated. We have a track, the studios on the northern side of the border. We were in Northern Ireland. We had the link transmitter. It was in the middle of a river. Uh, it was on a raft, which was bang on the border as well. So we were transmitting from there. I was the, sta the station manager, program director, Techie guy, tea maker, you know, doing whatever I was doing. This guy turned up from the Department of Communications in Dublin, knocked on the door, and he thought that we were in Donegal on the southern side of the border because that area, if you didn't know the area, you, you would still think that you were in Southern Ireland. So he knocked on the door. The girl who answered the phone said, Steve, Steve, there's some official fella. And I thought, well, that's fine. You know, the guy says, well, sir, did you know that you're, um, you're running a pirate radio station? And I said, well, a pirate radio station? No, no, no. We just record commercials, you know, for radio stations. That's what we do. And the guy says, well, I'm from the Department of Communications in Dublin. We're here to raid your radio station. So I says, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. But before we continue, would you just do me a favor? And he said, what's that? I said, look at the telephone number that's on that telephone. And then read it out to me. So he says, uh, 01504. I said, right, okay, so what area code is that? He says, is that Donegal? I says, no, 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 that's Northern Ireland, the North of Ireland. You've got 30 seconds to get out this area, and then we call the cops. You're trespassing. By that time, the then RUC, they were down outside our studio complex and they were ready to arrest this guy 
one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. There was a, there's a bridge. It's still it's in Calais. That's where the actual area is. But the DLC man was telling the IEC man where the border was. He wasn't too happy about. So yeah, the, the legality I, of of Riverside at that time in eighty eight. How how what's where does that fit in? The legality was that the main transmitter was up on a hill. Uh, it was a place called Sheriff's Mountain, which I, I actually can see uh, from my front door now. And the transmitter, the the actual switches for the transmitter were in Northern Ireland. Uh, the transmitting side of the transmitter were in Southern Ireland. As far as the legality con- is concerned, the tra- the actual transmitter inside of the transmitter was covered by the 1989 Act. The actual switching on and off side was covered by the 1990 Broadcasting Act. So what had to happen was that if it was, you know, if they wanted to come and raid the radio station, to switch it off, the Department of Communications, the PNT, the authorities from South of Ireland, had to enter Northern Ireland, but North of Ireland. Now, when they did... They had no jurisdiction. So you use a, right. almost like a, loop, a loophole in the border laws. Yeah, because it was covered by two acts in yeah. two different jurisdictions. So it was using the laws of two jurisdictions, basically, uh, to keep a radio station on the air. And we did. I mean, frankly, eventually got the license as Q102 in Derry, yeah. Hunt and Derry. And how, how long did you, how long did was that on the air for in that guise? About five years. So right through to the 90s then? Yeah, about 93. Frankie got the license, I think, in October. So what he did was the night before Riverside 101 went off the air and this brand new radio station came on the air the next day from the same studios. So let's bring Steve Marshall up to date now. What What's your current radio project? It's the local radio station. Me and my business partner, Jerry, we sat down about six years ago and thought, you know, it's time to shake things up a bit. And we realized that there wasn't a local radio station in this part of the world for young so people. when you say this area, whereabouts are you? Yeah, I'm in Derry, London, Derry, which is in the northwest of Northern Ireland. We started off as an internet-only thing, put the format together outside broadcasts, got the local council involved, got local community groups involved, and then we went to Ofcom for a license. And we were the first people to be awarded a small-scale DAB license in Northern Ireland, and one of the first you know, within Britain, the UK. Later this year, we go on DAB. You know, it's amazing just sitting there, sitting as I do on a Saturday morning in 2022. And I'm just reflecting, you know, that I'm still doing something that I really enjoy doing. It is like a drug. Radio is like a drug. Once you do it, and once you get involved with it, you just need that, in, you know, that, that buzz. Steve Marshall, thank you ever so much for being on the podcast. Nice to spend a bit of time with you. I've never spoken to you before. Uh, I didn't know what your connections were. And it's sort of the way I like it in a way, because I get to learn a lot about the people who who were involved back in the day. Absolute pleasure, Mark. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for listening to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please click the subscribe button and leave a review. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode, 
or you have any comment, then you can email us on piratepod7080 at gmail.com. That's piratepod7080 at gmail.com. Or go to the Lambase Pirate Radio of the 70s and 80s Facebook group. We'll be back on the 27th of July with a new episode where we will be moving out of London. Radio Nova on 1404 kilohertz, 212 meters in the medium wave band. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return into normal programming just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.